Unshackled of Pacific Garden Mission presents History's Greatest Sermons, where we share the personal history of godly men who brought forth the truth of the gospel in powerful sermons to a world long ago. Can you imagine sitting at the feet of one of history's greatest preachers and hearing their greatest sermons? Picture yourself on an old wooden pew in Charles Spurgeon's London Church or perched in a tree in the fields of a George Whitfield revival, or striding down the sawdust trail at a Billy Sunday prayer meeting. Whatever the scene, hearing these great sermons from the past will be as fitting to today's Christians as the day they were first preached. And now, here are your hosts, Tim Lundeen and Kelly Robbins. Kelly, welcome back. It's been another uh, interesting Interesting day. <laughs> it has that, Tim. It Good has. Uh, I want to welcome our listeners to this episode of History's Greatest Sermon, which will be a part two in a two-part sermon by J.C. Ryle. And the first part is, ta- well, the whole sermon is taken from the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. He, he has a really unique and interesting way of communicating himself. One of the things that he says in the first part, which by the way, If you want to hear the first part of the sermon, you have to go and get the Unshackled app. And all of our, all the previous episodes of History's Greatest Sermons are on the app. Just go get it and listen to it. And there are a couple of J.C. Riles. So that's true. They need to pick the correct one. This is not the first time we've heard from him. So Mm -hmm. if you're looking for part one, look for uh, uh, Jesus and Nicodemus, uh, or it might be called um, Regeneration. Yes, I believe so. Because this sermon is split into two Regeneration and Justification. So last time we heard regeneration. And he talks about a a number of different things. Mm -hmm. He first of all says the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is the most important passage in the Bible. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So there's that challenge, challenge taken. Uh, If you're out there and you're a pastor or minister, please email us Mm -hmm. and let us know if there's another passage that is the greatest passage in the Bible. We'd love to see that battle. Um, But the first part was called regeneration. And he he makes several points. One of the points was that this fearful Nicodemus, who has this conversation with Jesus quietly, secretly in the middle of the night, yes. later becomes an open disciple. Yes. And that carried great risk. He was part of the Sanhedrin. Yeah. And, and they were viciously against Jesus. And Nicodemus goes so far as to stand against them. Mm. And that is a massive change in a life. Yeah. Because the fears that drive us at the beginning are enough to own us for the rest of our lives unless something changes our course. And something did. Jesus himself. Yeah. The, uh, he also mentions um, that a miraculous, speaking of change, mm-hmm. that a miraculous change is demanded. Mm-hmm. Uh, in telling, when, when Nicodemus is talking to him and Jesus answers him, it says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, yeah. How's that anatomically going <laughs> right, to work here, no. buddy? And he, but he repeats himself three times. You have to be born again. Marvel not that I say you must be born again. You have to be born again. The change that is demanded is so miraculous. Yes. Uh, it just underscored the idea that it can't come from us. It's not uh, a work that we do mm-hmm. that changes us. I would say it's almost the salvation and the life that God has given us through the Holy Spirit allows us to do any work at all. There's an inanimate corpse that is us. Yeah. Once animated, all breath, all deed comes from him. Yeah. We, being the prideful creatures that we are, would love to think we have something to add to our own salvation. Yeah. 
forgetting, of course, that we were completely inanimate. Yeah. And even after, that can be a hard thing to break. So he addresses this in the regeneration part of things. And the, the utter change of a life truly God's is seen in Nicodemus himself. Because nothing can turn that level of fear into that level of action in God's name. And we'll see it. I mean, throughout the New Testament, we'll see lives changed. And throughout even uh, today, I, I, I almost think we should have a resource somewhere where we can be reminded. I know there's websites and there's social media and there's all this stuff. But imagine, imagine a social media page somewhere where it's just story after story of the least likely people. Yes. Whether it's someone who is very insignificant and, and, and quiet and becomes a very loud voice, mm. or whether it's someone who is just pagan to the core. Loud voice. Yeah, right. right? Who becomes uh, just a, this, this messenger of the gospel. Yes, quiet. It's right. happened in the New Testament. It can ha- it's today. It does. It just happens today. And yes. man, if we hear more of that, we, it, just, it reminds us more and more of how miraculous that change is. Um, it does remind me of J.C. Ryle studied law, but he couldn't finish his studies, but he, at least he studied it. And those elements, especially in the first part of the sermon, uh, that focus on the importance of satisfying that legal requirement were yes. pretty heavy. Yes. And uh, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. appreciate hearing it. And what's funny is there's, a, there's a, uh, an evangelist out there who will sometimes say, try that in the court of law. So if someone's dis- discussing their faith or their religion of the, of, the, of the day, and they say, well, yeah, I think I'm a good person or... Yeah, I think I'll, I'll I'll do fine. I'll get to heaven because I've I've done good things, you know. And he'll say, "Yeah, try that in the court of law, mm. where we're we know we're guilty or we've fallen. We're we we have fallen far short of the glory of God. That's for sure. Yeah. We've broken every single one of the Ten Commandments, and we're standing before the judge. Are we innocent or guilty? Well, we're guilty. Well, yeah, but I'm a good person. I w- I've done good things. Here's like, the list. Don't my good things outweigh my bad things? And, and the judge will look at you like, well, that's irrelevant. Yes. That's not why you're, you're, we are condemned under the law, not because of the good things we've done. Right. We stand guilty. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. <laughs> right. right. Uh, and it's just, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit works to cover that. Yes. I don't know how to describe that or what words that I'm, that I'm trying to think of, but that, that was also near the, the final part of his first sermon. The first part of this sermon was that the Spirit's work in salvation is mighty, even though it's intangible. And of course, the allegory was the wind. Of course, yes. And we can't see it, but we certainly see the effects of it. Right. And most of us know that. Yeah. Allegory. And it's fabulous because it's so true. It's so thoroughly true. So as we stand guilty, Jesus walks up behind and hands the judge the document that that says, no, this one's mine. Yeah. And And that's what we're not prepared for. Right. (laughs) The cool thing that that every once in a while, the imagery that comes to my mind is when when he says, we see the effects of the wind, even though you can't tell where it's come from or even where it's going. And that same, that same spirit of wind can uh, put out a candle mm. or destroy a country exactly with a storm. Yes. And it's just, it's amazing that same wind, what it can do. And I don't know, not to say that the Holy, everything the Holy Spirit does is destructive. No, no, not at all. What we're talking about is scale, mm, the yeah. economics. It can poof, you know, poofing out a candle yeah. takes little or nothing. You yeah. and I could do it. 
but we can't raise a country and the wind can't. And so as we pray for those in our knowledge, praying for the spirit's wind to blow is one of the most powerful things we can do. Mm. I'm praying for someone right now daily that the spirit would woo this person and call them in a way that they understand. And that is his works. I can't do that. Yeah. Well, amen to that. Mm. This second part is called justification. So let's listen in the second part of the sermon by J.C. Ryle. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. We have in these verses the second part of the conversation between our Lord Jesus Christ and Nicodemus. A lesson about regeneration is closely followed by a lesson about justification. The whole passage ought always to be read with affectionate reverence. It contains words which have brought eternal life to myriads of souls. These verses show us first what gross spiritual ignorance there may be in the mind of a great and learned man. We see a master of Israel, unacquainted with the first elements of salvation. Nicodemus is told about the new birth and at once exclaims, How can these things be? When such was the darkness of a Jewish teacher, what must have been the state of the Jewish people? It was indeed due time for Christ to appear. The pastors of Israel had ceased to feed the people with knowledge. The blind were leading the blind, and both were falling into the ditch. Matthew chapter 15, verse 14. Ignorance like that of Nicodemus is unhappily far too common in the church. We must never be surprised if we find it in quarters where we might reasonably expect knowledge, learning, and rank, and High ecclesiastical office are no proof that a minister is taught by the Spirit. The successors of Nicodemus in every age are far more numerous than the successors of Peter. 
On no point is religious ignorance so common as on the work of the Holy Ghost. That old stumbling block at which Nicodemus stumbled is as much an offense to thousands in the present day as it was in the days of Christ. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Happy is he who has been taught to prove all things by Scripture and to call no man master upon earth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Matthew chapter 23, verses 8 through 10. Second, these verses show us the original source from which man's salvation springs. That source is the love of God the Father. Our Lord says to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This wonderful verse has been justly called by Luther the Bible in miniature. No part of it, perhaps, is so deeply important as the five words, God so loved the world. The love here spoken of is not that special love with which the Father regards his own elect, but that mighty pity and compassion with which he regards the whole race of mankind. Its object is not merely the little flock which he has given to Christ from all eternity, but the whole world of sinners without any exception. There is a deep sense in which God loves that world. All whom he has created, he regards with pity and compassion. Their sins he cannot love, but he loves their souls. His tender mercies are over all his works. Psalm 145, verse 9. Christ is God's gracious gift to the whole world. Let us take heed that our views of the love of God are scriptural and well-defined. The subject is one on which error abounds on either side. On the one hand, we must beware of vague and exaggerated opinions. We must maintain firmly that God hates wickedness and that the end of all who persist in wickedness will be destruction. It is not true that God's love is lower than hell. It is not true that God so loved the world that all mankind will finally be saved, but that he so loved the world that he gave his Son to be Savior of all who believe. His love is offered to all men freely, fully, honestly, and unreservedly, but it is only through the one channel of Christ's redemption. He who rejects Christ cuts himself off from God's love and will perish everlastingly. On the other hand, we must beware of narrow and contracted opinions. We must not hesitate to tell any sinner that God loves him. It is not true that God cares for none but his own elect or that Christ is not offered for any but those who are ordained to eternal life. There is a kindness and love in God toward all mankind. Titus chapter 3 verse 4. It was in consequence of that love that Christ came into the world and died upon the cross. Let us not be wise above that which is written or more systematic in our statements than Scripture itself. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not willing that any should perish. God would have all men to be saved. God loves the world. These verses show us third 
the peculiar plan by which the love of God has provided salvation for sinners. That plan is the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Our Lord says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. By being lifted up, our Lord meant nothing less than his own death upon the cross. That death, he would have us know, was appointed by God to be the life of the world. John chapter 6 verse 51. It was ordained from all eternity to be the great propitiation and satisfaction for man's sin. It was the payment by an almighty substitute and representative of man's enormous debt to God. When Christ died upon the cross... Our many sins were laid upon him. He was made sin for us. He was made a curse for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. By his death, he purchased pardon and complete redemption for sinners. The brazen serpent lifted up in the camp of Israel brought health and cure within the reach of all who were bitten by serpents. Christ crucified in like manner, brought eternal life within reach of lost mankind. Christ has been lifted up on the cross, and man looking to him by faith may be saved. The truth before us is the very foundation stone of the Christian religion. Christ's death is the Christian's life. Christ's cross is the Christian's title to heaven. Christ lifted up and put to shame on Calvary is the ladder by which Christians enter into the holiest, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, and are at length landed in glory. It is true that we are sinners, but Christ suffered for us. It is true that we deserve death, but Christ has died for us. It is true that we are guilty debtors, but Christ has paid our debts with his own blood. This is the real gospel. This is the good news. On this let us lean while we live. To this let us cling when we die. Christ has been lifted up on the cross and has thrown open the gates of heaven to all believers. These verses show us forth the way in which the benefits of Christ's death are made our own. That way is simply to put faith and trust in Christ. Faith is the same thing as believing. Three times our Lord repeats this glorious truth to Nicodemus. Twice he proclaims that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And once he says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. Faith in the Lord Jesus is the very key of salvation. He that has it has life. And he that has it not, has not life. Nothing whatever beside this faith is necessary to our complete justification, but nothing whatever except this faith will give us an interest in Christ. We may fast and mourn for sin and do many things that are right and use religious ordinances and give all our goods to feed the poor, and yet remain unpardoned and lose our souls. But... If we will only come to Christ as guilty sinners and believe on him, our sins shall at once be forgiven and our iniquities shall be entirely put away. Without faith there is no salvation, 
but through faith in Jesus, the vilest sinner may be saved. If we would have a peaceful conscience in our religion, let us see that our views of saving faith are distinct and clear. Let us beware of supposing that justifying faith is anything more than a sinner's simple trust in a savior, the grasp of a drowning man on the hand held out for his relief. Let us beware of mingling anything else with faith in the matter of justification. Here we must always remember faith stands entirely alone. A justified man, no doubt, should always be a holy man, True believing should always be accompanied by godly living. But that which gives a man an interest in Christ is not his living, but his faith. If we would know whether we are justified by Christ, there is but one question to be asked. Do we believe? Fifth, these verses show us the true cause of the loss of man's soul. Our Lord says to Nicodemus, This is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. The words before us form a suitable conclusion to the glorious tidings which we have just been considering. They completely clear God of injustice in the condemnation of sinners. They show in simple and unmistakable terms that although man's salvation is entirely of God, his ruin, if he is lost, will be entirely from himself. He will reap the fruit of his own sowing. The doctrine here laid down ought to be carefully remembered. It supplies an answer to a common cavil of the enemies of God's truth. There is no decreed reprobation excluding anyone from heaven. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There is no unwillingness on God's part to receive any sinner, however great his sins. God has sent light into the world, and if man will not come to the light, the fault is entirely on man's side. His blood will be on his own head if he makes shipwreck of his soul. The blame will be at his own door if he misses heaven. His eternal misery will be the result of his own choice. His destruction will be the work of his own hand. God loved him and was willing to save him. But he loved darkness, and therefore darkness must be his everlasting portion. He would not come to Christ, and therefore he could not have life. John chapter 5, verse 40. The truths we have been considering are peculiarly weighty and solemn? Do we live as if we believed them? Salvation by Christ's death is close to us today. Have we embraced it by faith and made it our own? Let us never rest till we know Christ as our own Savior. Let us look to him without delay for pardon and peace if we have never looked before. Let us go on believing on him if we have already believed. Whosoever is his own gracious word, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That was J.C. Ryle, portrayed by Jeff Parker. He talks about the ignorance of people like Nicodemus. Yeah. And yet 
Nicodemus was a teacher of teachers. He yeah. was a master of their law. Yeah, he wasn't talking, he wasn't saying the ignorance of your average layperson. I don't expect the average guy in the street to have understood the words of Jesus. I mean, no. that takes a little bit of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, so the expectation wasn't, he wasn't frustrated by the ignorance there. He was saying the ignorance of Nicodemus. And I think the quote was, ignorance like that of Nicodemus is far too common in the church. And isn't that just always true? Why is that? Yeah. Ah. Especially with, now specifically, the leadership of the church. Right. Why is ignorance so common? Pride, possibly. Maybe our checklist of things we do to please God. Hmm. My husband loves to read history. And a lot of what he's picked up across time in his reading, we tend to find themes and patterns, mm -hmm. is that when we become somebody who is well-schooled in the ways of God or anything, we become an expert. Mm -hmm. And that's true of our professions and things as well. But as we become an expert, we get really good at it, and it gives us some, some status, some say. And if we continue in that path and kind of enjoy that, it's easy to get to the place where we start feeling like we might speak for God. And then it's not too far before our words are from God. And then we become his spokesperson. Yeah. And there is a trail there that leads to some really hard things. That's usually, and I'm not, I'm not going to name names, <laughs> but that's usually sometimes when they'll review a minister to see if they're a false teacher. Yes. If they stand on stage and repeatedly say, God told me this and God told me that and God told me this and I want you to hear the word of the Lord today and then they don't quote scripture, mm -hmm. it gets a, it's a very slippery slope, isn't it? Yes. But that, that ignorance... Mm -hmm. Uh, we just, we're resting on our laurels, we're resting on our own understanding, and then we just forget that it's the Holy Spirit right. who should be inspiring And it's us. pride, because we become our own sufficiency. Mm. And the pride and the ignorance go together. We think we've got this. And how many of us stumble at exactly that point? He, um, he goes through, he continues on through this second half, and he goes through, he goes through the whole uh, list. He mm -hmm. goes, he says, God's love for the world. Mm-hmm. He goes through, there's no salvation outside of Christ's atonement. Mm -hmm. So God loves the world to, to pay for our debt. He sends Christ to atone for our debt solely and completely. And the only way we can accept it is by faith. You can see where this train is going, you know. And the way God did it is he sent light into the world. And there's the kicker. That's it. Because we love darkness, don't we? Yes. And... I think that's, that is a stumbling block for a lot of people because they think, well, it goes back to the whole thing. Well, if God loves, if God is so loving, why does he condemn people to an eternity without him? Well, it's his very love that demands that that justice be done. He is a good God. He would be a terrible uh, judge if he just let people go scot-free. Right. Nobody wants that. No. It's in, in here because we're in, created in the image of God. We actually long for justice. Yes, it's in us. We want to see it done. Mm -hmm. Only not, I mean, not to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> like if I do something wrong, I want to be forgiven a hundred percent. You know, and, but and it, if I'm good enough, I can become the judge, and therefore I escape. Yeah, there's a whole thing we do. So there. we set our standards on God and say, "Well, I think God should act this way." Right. He's saying, "No, here is the light of the world, and the light shines in the darkness, mm -hmm. and the darkness it doesn't understand it." 
the darkness, it just, I don't know. We love darkness. It's such a short, simple verse, but it's so true. I find that there are a couple of litmuses to test. And one of those is that I would call it a mantle of humility in Mm -hmm. leadership. The person that acknowledges that they struggle, that they understand this. You can tell in people's tone, I get this. I'm, it's easier to hear from them and to understand because they get it, right? It's the person who refuses that. that I think J.C. Rao would agree because he was hit hard with life. Yes. He had everything going for him, mm-hmm. and he was brought down to the lowest level through loss of status, through loss of education and stature and opportunity, his health, yes. and it brought him here. And that we're hearing, I, I hope that our listeners also hear that he is speaking in love. Yes. He's not, he's not, the only people he ever gets really angry at are the Nicodemuses of the world who are just ignorant and working out in their ignorance. And he's just like, listen, God's love is so great. Mm-hmm. We should be encouraged by what Christ has done in his atonement and that we are only to accept it by faith. Yes. You can hear someone speak from humility and that's it. And humility is never out of season. Hmm. That closes us up for today. Once again, if you've got some feedback for us, we'd love to hear it. Email us at podcast at unshackled.com. Don't forget to download the app. You can download the app on all the major app stores. It's also how you'll hear all of our previous sermons, including part one of this week's sermon. And we look forward to uh, hearing from you through all the other channels we have, social media. And uh, again, that email is important. Podcast at unshackled.com. This has been History's Greatest Sermons, an unshackled production of Pacific Garden Mission, produced and directed by Timothy Gregory. To hear more unshackled content, you can download our app, get it for free at any of the major app stores. For more information, visit unshackled.org. Join us next time as we experience another one of History's Greatest Sermons.